this morning, I've got a good friend, an old friend, who will be preaching. His name's Dr. Bob Smart. Uh, Bob pastors a church called Christ Church in Bloomington, Illinois. And I met Bob about 16 or 17 years ago, he and Karen and their five children. And I went to his church, I was studying up that way, and I'd been in different types of churches, but never one like his. And I remember, I still remember, 16 years later, that he preached from Genesis 50. And I sat there, I'd never seen what was happening. There were small children, 10, 12, 13 years old, taking notes on what he was saying. And, and he preached a long time, a lot longer than me. But I felt like I couldn't believe when they said it was finished, and I was just so captivated by the preaching of the gospel through him. When I was in seminary, let me just say this, he has been a constant source of 16 years of encouragement, mentoring, bringing light into darkness for a pastor, me, who struggles at times. And when I was in seminary, I remember going through a very, he doesn't know this, but going through a very dark time, and because you're just reading, 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 writing, 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 and he's just walking across the campus, he was teaching a class, and he looked at me, and he said, Rusty, do you ever feel like that you, you've just got to worship and cry out, and like Jesus says, if you don't, the rocks will? And I just said, no, that's not where I am. And he looked at me, and he said, you know, I didn't think so. <laughs> and then he began to minister to me, and he's been doing that for 16 years. So it is a great joy. He spent time with our elders this weekend, and he is a dear brother and has a dear family. And so, Bob, we want to ask you to come up and preach God's word to us, and thank you so much for coming to spend time with us. I invite you to turn in your Bibles once more to Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 14 to 21. Now, when I come to this text, I realize it's historical and reliable that it was written to church in Ephesus a long time ago. And so it's not just that we want to know how Paul models prayer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the Ephesians then, 2,000 years ago, we come to this text and want to know how you and I can pray today for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Dothan, Alabama in the very near future. And when I come to the text, I not just, it's not just to know that the Father's able to give the Holy Spirit abundantly after conversion for spiritual power in seeing and savoring Christ in all his beauty back then, but that the Father is willing to pour out his spirit for spiritual power for us to see and to savor and to delight in the beauty of Jesus Christ today. It's not just to know the breadth and length and depth and height of the love of Christ in our minds, but to experience Christ's love for us in our inner being as a congregation and individually that surpasses knowledge 
beyond what we ask or think or imagine. We don't just want a bit of God today, but rather the fullness of God in our midst. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, here we are in Dothan, Alabama, amongst the most precious saints enjoying a time with the session and deacons. Yesterday, I sense that you have fashioned this place according to the condition of your will, which is always so gracious and kind. Joseph came to Dothan, and that began his process of humiliation before exaltation. Elisha came to Dothan and prayed that the eyes of his servant would be opened to see how much you were for them. The Lord Jesus, you're the other Joseph who already went down in humiliation and has been exalted at the highest place. And you're the other Elisha, and we're like your servant. We can't see how much you're for us. And according to your riches, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold your beauty and to taste and see you're so good and so kind. Melt our hearts, please. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, my favorite subject, my favorite revival passage, one of my closest friends almost made me cry before I even got up to preach. Thank you, and what a blessing to be here. I was asked to, my assignment was to speak on revival, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon a people not based on the conditional view that if we fast enough and if we humble ourselves enough and if we pray enough and if we all agree together enough and all those things, then God will. Quoting Second Chronicles 7.14, that view is very popular in evangelical circles. 
And it basically is a view that we earn an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is a free gift of God. It's not a view here that is the Pentecost and that's it view. The Holy Spirit was given in a one-time historical event at Pentecost. That is true, but there were many Pentecosts in the book of Acts and throughout church history, which I've been very fond to study. But rather, it's, sort of, it's a Christ-centered gospel view, a pneumatological Calvinistic view, you might say, that Christ merited for us the promise of the Father, that is the Holy Spirit. And when he ascended at the right hand, the Father gave him the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. And he has ever since been pouring out the Holy Spirit for regeneration individually and for churches and for God's people to advance his kingdom worldwide ever since. Namely, that the gospel, when the gospel's recovered in a church that is asking the Father for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the fullness of God to be manifest and present in the inner being of a congregation, then transformation takes place. Normal Christianity quickens. And so I'd like to assume that there is a recovery of the gospel, which I know to be true, taking place here and around this area. And I'm reminded of Jonathan Edwards. I studied him for a PhD on this very subject, and he began preaching a recovery of the gospel, a justification by faith alone series. And God began to pour out the Holy Spirit. In this context, Ephesians 1 through 2, there is the gospel made clear and plain. But notice now in chapter 3, he's praying for something beyond knowledge, for an experience, and he's asking God for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit for the people there. So I'd like to look at three marks of a true outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The first is extraordinary prayer. The second is spiritual power. And the third is, my notes say, I tried to keep three Ps to keep me in line. Experimental presence, experiential presence. The first mark is extraordinary prayer. What is extraordinary prayer? Notice Paul in verse 14 through 16, he says, I bow my knees before the Father, dot, 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 that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you an outpouring of the Spirit. Notice, it's not a prayer for outward circumstances. I'm praying for your finances. I'm praying for your attendance. I'm praying for your this and that. But for the church to have in their inner being an experience of spiritual power and a sense of God's experiential presence, all the fullness of God, verse 19. It's Trinitarian in this passage. If you go after the Holy Spirit, he'll disappear. You must go after the Father and ask for the Spirit 
to know Christ and to savor his beauty, and then the Holy Spirit comes with power in that way. Notice it's corporate prayer with all the saints, and it is uh, just a known doctrine that every spiritual awakening in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in church history was proceeded by and founded upon a corporate, prevailing, Christ-centered, kingdom-advancing, extraordinary time of prayer, which, by the way, even prayer is a gift. Zechariah 12 and other passages tell this. Matthew Henry says, when God intends great mercy for his people, he first sets them up praying. Extraordinary prayer. Habakkuk 3.2. Oh God, I've heard the report. I've heard of times of revival in the past. Oh God, in my day, do it again. Extraordinary prayer. Psalm 85 verse 6. Will you not revive your, church, your people again that they may rejoice in you? Extraordinary prayer. When Jesus was pre praying, they they asked in Luke 11, teach us to pray corporately, teach us to pray, and he gave them the Lord's Prayer, and then he, he went on to say that it's like going to a friend's house and knocking till he finally wakes up with, with, with earnestness in such a way that his friend must get up and give him what he asked particularly, and he says in Luke 11:13, will not your father give you the Holy Spirit when you ask. Extraordinary prayer. Now, here we have Paul saying he bows his knees. Usually prayer was standing. Jesus said, when you pray, standing, and when you see those praying, standing. So this was an extraordinary prayer. This is kneeling its fervent for God's people to experience his fullness. Notice it's for Christians. He already said in the earlier chapters, Christ already dwells in you. He already said they have the earnest or the down payment of what is to come through the Holy Spirit. They've been sealed. Yet he's praying for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit for God's people. Why? Well, it's one thing to believe and reason these things. It's another to experience and taste them. Or we might say the incredible implications of the gospel that you're united in Christ have not fully been appropriated and enjoyed. There's more transformation to take place. In 1857, the last major outpouring of the Holy Spirit began in New York City. Jeremiah Lamphere, Dutch Reformed Church, put out a cardboard sign at noon prayer for the businessmen there. Twelve showed up, 25 showed up, 50 showed up, hundred thousands. The famous news editor, newspaper men, horse and buggy back then, Horace Greeley went around to try and count all the people, all the men praying 
in prayer meetings at the noon hour and he could only get to some four or 5,000. There were 80,000 people converted in New York City in that one year. Extraordinary prayer is reflected by Jonathan Edwards' book we know as Humble Attempt. The actual title is A Humble Attempt to Promote Explicit Agreement and Visible Union of All God's People in Extraordinary Prayer for Revival of True Christianity According to Scriptural Promises and Prophecies. Is there a willingness to bow your knees and ask the Father to pour out the Holy Spirit in the inner being of your church. The poorest places of the 30 nations I've been to to teach in seminaries was Kinshasa, DR Congo. I, they, uh, Ilolongiza asked me to pray. Nick Makuna, my translator, uh, told me, and I trust you translating well, that he wanted me to come preach there. And he lived in the pit of Kinshasa and had a crummy scaffolding-type church that sat maybe 300. I said, I will come if you pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He promised me he would. They set themselves up praying. And I came. And when I came, they, they greet you like this. All the ladies go, They're so expectant. And I just preached the same old ordinary sermon like this one. I, don't, I just preached the gospel. And God poured out his Holy Spirit in such a beautiful way. The dirt road had... No advertising. Hundreds of people waiting to get in. There was such an overwhelming response, no one could really move to respond. I've tasted and I've seen. I know this is inspired by the Holy Spirit and we're to enter into extraordinary prayer like Paul to pray scripture. And we need not be afraid Presbyterians. As you know, there was somebody in Scotland that went to visit a Presbyterian church. I assumed it was Eric Alexander, but the preacher got up and he was preaching so well. This guy was a believer and he came to visit this church and he didn't, he thought Presbyterians were trying to save the whales and not souls. And he came and this, he began to say, praise the Lord. And an usher came up and said, excuse me, but we don't praise the Lord here. Do you believe gospel transformation begins in the inner being through a powerful attendance of the Holy Spirit working by and with the gospel? That it's normal Christianity only heightened. That it's not all this crazy stuff we've seen. Are you willing to bow the knee? The first mark is extraordinary prayer. The second mark, spiritual power, verse 16. 
to be strengthened, that's where I get the word power, through his spirit, that's why I say spiritual power, in your inner being. Spiritual awakening, revival, and outpouring of his spirit will affect three types of people powerfully. The first is the sleepy, the second is the nominal, and the third is the lost. The sleepy believers awake, awakening. Whereas before they were neither sad nor happy, but then when they have an assurance of the love of God through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and begin to taste and see the beauty of Jesus Christ, suddenly they have an assurance, a Romans 8, 15, 16, witness with their spirit that indeed they are a child of God. To put it like this, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, it's like you're walking along with the father as a little child and then suddenly along the walk he picks you up and hugs you and kisses you and puts you back down. The sleepy awake, like Jonah underneath the boat and all the other, the world is saying, not the elders, shouldn't you wake up and call on your God in times like this? It's like 1 Kings 18 where Elijah says, pour more water on it. I want to, to make sure everyone sees who is nominal that God can do the impossible for his own glory to awaken his people, to get them turned back to himself. Turn, O God. He says, answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you are God and that you are turning your, their hearts back again. And fire came from heaven and licked all the water up. The sleepy awake, the nominal are saved. There are many who believe they're believers and they're not. And the church will become a beautiful, powerful place of outreach by her worship, by her own testimonies and word of mouth. My own church, we had people who, by all evidence is, I believe they were believers. And then certain times I was preaching and they'll say, it was that day I was sitting in that seat that God changed me. And they'll say, I don't know if I was born again. I don't know what happened. And I'll just say, let's just go on with it. It doesn't matter. Now you know. But I do believe they were born of the Holy Spirit. The last is, the lost are converted. Instead of outreach, in times of revival, people just flood the churches and say, God has come. God has come to Dothan. These are the facts in history and so forth. What do you think your greatest need is here at the church at First Press? Is your greatest need finances? Is your greatest need worship enhancement? Is it missions? Is it outreach? Is it attendance? Is it growth? Is it holiness? Is it healing? An outpouring of the Holy Spirit takes care of all those. Whence he comes with power every time in Bible and church history, you have missions increasing, you have healing, you have transformation, you have financial giving, you have outreach, etc. Now, some say what we need is the gospel. 
I say amen. Others say, we just need the Holy Spirit. I say amen. However, we need both. We need both the gospel and the Holy Spirit. All gospel, you might dry up. All spirit, you may blow up. Gospel and spirit, you'll grow up. Without extraordinary prayer and spiritual power, we are left to be an orthodox corpse, which whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinistic corpse, you're still a corpse. Corpse is a corpse. We need life. When my kids, we've never had revival at our church. We've had mercy drops. But when my we had five kids, zone defense is what I recommend. And the youngest two are twins, a tall boy, played basketball, cute little girl uh, who's the cheerleader. We were able to go to one game finally with the twins. The older three got married, and now they're all married. We have our 13th grandchild. We'll go see little Ayla uh, Monday. But uh, they were at our Christian schools, Cornerstone Christian Academy, and the faculty came to our church and so forth, and they were getting a lot of gospel. Bible class, every class, gospel, gospel, gospel. Lives were being transformed, and the school began to be transformed. But on Spirit Week, or whatever it was called, we had a lineup of gospel preachers from our church, and Friday was my day, and I, Friday's usually my day off, and, but I gave it my best, and I preached, and I just sensed God was going to do something great, but I just began to, like, sense I'm dying. One dear young man came forward, gave his life to worldwide missions and so forth, but it wasn't a whole lot, and I was driving home, and the urge inside was to call my dearest friends and, and sort of woo from them affirmation or confirm that this is the day I'm quitting ministry. And I thought, well, no, I'll, I'm going to call that chaplain and just apologize. I am so sorry. And I thought, no, that's self-centered, self-referential. Don't do it. Don't call your friends. Just embrace the sorrow. Don't have a funeral over a sermon. Don't have an award ceremony. Give a trophy and all just move on. So I just sent my children, the twins, a text. It's great to see you. Hope God uh, gives you a good day. And the chaplain, thanks for leading so well. Text back, revival. Ethan texts back, I just led five guys to the Lord. Lizzie, revival. The leader of the school said, we're going to cancel school today. And when we came back, and we could only watch from the, uh, whatever it's called, Utsa, and um, we looked down, and there were just like little chicks in little gatherings and huddles, repenting, believing, ordinary Christianity. There was a sense of the presence of God. Every time one would be converted, one kid, there'd be a cheer. Yay! And over here, yay! It lasted three days. 
our children would come home at night and just talk about the Lord and what he was doing each day. It's just an approximation of the consummation. It's just what's here that Paul's praying for. It's not heaven itself. It's, it's just a nearness to what will one day be experienced in the fullness and the presence of God. The Spirit attends the gospel and applies it in the inner beings of people according to the power that works within us. And every generation in church has two kinds of people, either the legalists into religion or in the antinomians who are just into grace, grace, and party, party, party. You see it in our seminaries. And what we need is the gospel with the Holy Spirit. We need to see and savor the beauty of Jesus Christ. We haven't in a while. I don't think in a major general way. The legalists are all about religion, and religion functions in three ways. One, to make God owe you something. Two, to separate the world between the good people and the bad people. And thirdly, to say, thank you, God, I'm not like the bad people. So they never see their need to experience the love of Christ. And then you have the psychological antinomian who's got it all figured out in his reason and mind and just really becomes a hedonist. Let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we go to heaven. And only a recovery of the gospel and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit through extraordinary prayer, will we know the spiritual power that we seem to lack in our generation? The third is experiential presence, verse 19. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness, plethora of God. It surpasses knowledge, which points to experience. It surpasses knowledge, which means not it's not without knowledge. It's just that with knowledge you come to a certain point, and then it surpasses. It's more or beyond a notional notion of the love of Christ. Verse 20, far more abundantly than all we ask or think or imagine. Verse 18 is the key word that you may grasp or comprehend is the word I have here in this Bible. Comprehend is katalambano. It means to seize and take captive. That you may have power through the Holy Spirit. That you may seize onto and take captive a knowledge of the love of Christ, the breath the length, the height, to comprehend, to lay hold of the humility of Christ. How beautiful is the humility of Christ. To just meditate and comprehend and know the humility of Jesus Christ is a beautiful thing. Or the exaltation of Christ in its height. Or him on the cross laying down his life and loving us without sin, no self-protection, opening himself up to pain, for our healing, by his wounds we're healed and saved. To see your worth, 
in what you cost there on the cross. To comprehend, not through programs for revival, not by methods for revival, not by emotionalisms, although those are often accompanied by an experiential knowledge of the love of Christ because your heart is melted. Rather, it's when the congregation is in awe. It comes like at the end of Rusty's sermons where he said this and that, you're taking notes, and all of a sudden no one's taking notes anymore, and you're just in awe, and time seems to turn into eternity, and he's, he's, he's waxing eloquently. He's focusing on Jesus Christ. And somehow God makes an impression of his presence in you, and you can't explain it, but you know you'll never be the same ever since. Often it's when the congregation just becomes silent. No one's moving around and shuffling, and the focus is just on Christ. When I was an intern in seminary, I was at Twin Oaks Presbyterian Church, and Rodney Stortz, who's now gone home to be with the Lord, faithfully did evangelism explosion for 14 years and saw three conversions. He had Mark Ressler, who was with D. James Kennedy and went to Catalina Hills to start a church in Tucson, Arizona. It went well. He's retired now. A friend of mine. And at the end of the week of training... He was preaching. We were, we were planting a church. The church was being built. We were praying for 700 people. I'll never forget one of the elders said, we're going to trust God for 700 people. We opened the doors. We had 1,000. I was a slave intern, I know, because my tongue was hanging out, and I, I was running around like crazy. But we were, one, a Sunday night. There were 300 of us, and we're in this sort of theater in a high school, and uh, I was praying Oh, God, please pour out the Holy Spirit. And Mark Ressler was preaching on evangelism, and at the end he said, I don't know, something's up. And I started saying, yes, in my seat quietly to myself and the Lord. And he said, I don't know, we're, we're Presbyterians. You don't have an altar call. And everyone here probably knows the Lord. I don't know. And he said, but I think we should respond and all come down. and Just give your heart to Jesus, something like that. And I remember uh, Rodney said, hey, Bobby, come here. Get a pencil and paper here and write down everyone's name. We're going to sign them up for evangelism explosion. I said, Rodney, that's not what God's doing, I'm pretty sure. All I remember is we just all stood and held hands in the presence of God. And a couple sang only in Jesus we stand. And when they were done, there was such an overwhelming sense of God's presence and joy. And when they were done, they said, now what do we do? And they said, sing it again. So he sang it again. That week, we all led so many people to the Lord. I led 20 people to the Lord. It was just a fruitful time. It lasted one week. God is sovereign. He comes when he wills, on who he wills, and it lasts as long as he wills. But normally, ordinary Christianity is what we experience. Yet, in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, we're invited 
to pray along with Paul for something more, a taste of what is to come. And when he comes like this, before the final coming, there's an advancement of his kingdom in a quickened way, and more is done in one week than in five years' time. I want to just give you a quote. I probably went too long. I don't know my time. I went too long, didn't I? So I just went too long. Why even ask? So the here's a quote from a Presbyterian in Dundee, 1859-60. This is their experience. Just as the sun was beginning to shine out again, the rain was ceasing. An extraordinary sense of the divine presence fell upon the whole assembly. Suddenly, the Christians were filled with great joy. Simultaneously, many of the anxious found the Lord and began to break forth in songs of praise. The cloud of glory rested there for a season, and no visible signs or miraculous gifts uh, could have added to the blessed consciousness and veritable certainty of the immediate presence and gracious working of God till memory fails or the more excellent glory of the unveiled face of Jesus obliterates the remembrance of faith's brightest visions on earth. It is impossible for us to forget the awful nearness of God at that time the overpowering sense of blended majesty and love and holiness and solemn gladness and the soft, pure radiance of a Redeemer's face that chased the doubt and sin away from many a soul. Extraordinary prayer to God, spiritual power from God, experiential presence of God. Three marks of a spiritual awakening and why we should pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Lord, your old hymn, the old hymn writer says, the hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden street. And we pray, Lord, that you would be gracious, as you always are, and grant a thousand sacred sweets here over the years until you come again. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.